Good morning, Elevation. It's good to be with you in this online space. For those of you who may just be joining in with us for the first time here on Facebook Live, my name is Brandon and I'm the lead pastor of Elevation here in Waterloo. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What a gift we have in this book, a reminder time and time again of who God is, of who we are, and what those two things have to do with each other. The passage read for us this morning is a reminder of the sweeping story of God's active involvement in bringing all of humanity into a new freedom as we choose to live by the Spirit in the knowledge that we are the children of God. We know this because these very words were captured, preserved, and passed on. Shortly, I'm going to be leaving for a trip to Algonquin Park to do some camping with some friends. Very happy that the provincial rules changed just the other day, and so now I'll be able to go. Uh, so my friend who has been camping in this place before sent this picture, and he's like, guys, it's going to be so great. This is the view we're going to have when we go on our bike trip. And, you know, lots to look forward to for sure. Such a great idea to do this camping trip. But then, of course, I look at the weather report, and the weather report is calling for a few showers, and no one wants showers when you're camping. And then, you know, as I've mentioned this to a couple of different people, they've said something like, oh, isn't it, you know, black fly season or, oh, the mosquitoes will be crazy. And I'm like, okay, you know, this seemed like a really good idea, but now there are these different kind of barriers getting in the way. Hopefully it will all go well. If not, at least I'll have a good story to tell. Generally speaking, reading the Bible is a good idea, but almost as soon as we crack open its pages, we're faced with the very real questions about what we're reading. We're faced with our own challenges, not about the weather or bugs, but in different things. How do the books that made up the Bible fit together? What do we do with contradictions or morally suspect passages? What does it mean when we talk about this book being inspired? So acknowledging these and other important questions is the first step to learning how to read the Bible for all it's worth. And that's what we're gonna be doing this morning and the next couple of Sundays. Now, a disclaimer, a couple of things. First of all, this will not be comprehensive. We wanna learn how to read the Bible. We're not gonna do it in three 20 minute segments. Um, the second thing that I would say is that these three parts need to fit together. I realize that lots of people will be doing things like camping and you may miss a Sunday morning and I'm going to encourage you to listen to the podcast or watch this video um, because these three weeks about how to read the Bible really need to go together like the pieces of a puzzle. Now we're going to use Romans 8 as a backdrop, although we won't be walking through the text like we normally might do. I wanted us to use Roman 8 uh, because I was inspired by this by N.T. Wright, who is one of the world's preeminent New Testament scholars. I heard him speak, uh, give a lecture uh, a few years ago, and he talked about how when he interviews people who want to kind of be under his teaching, uh, he'll ask them this kind of question to kind of get a sense of their interaction with the Bible. He says, if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only bring three chapters of the Bible with you, what would those three chapters be? And then he says, and then I always tell them, of course, you're bringing John chapter 20, which is about the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, you're bringing Romans chapter eight. He said, so really, what one passage would you bring? Romans chapter 8, as you've just heard, is this beautiful passage that speaks about who we are in Christ. So we're going to use that as a bit of a backdrop. The goal of this series is multi. Um, it could be including piquing your curiosity about the Bible, if maybe you've let it gather a little dust recently. Uh, also creating awareness of some of the pitfalls we can fall into, but also some of the opportunities that are there if we open this book and read it, read it well. And finally, we want to provide some tools for you that will help you read the Bible in a better way. 
Pidens writes, the Bible holds out for us an invitation to join an ancient, well-traveled, and sacred quest to know God, the world we live in, and our place in it. Not abstractly, but intimately and experientially. So if knowing God is the goal of scripture, how do we get there? Now, what would you say to someone who bought a set of winter tires and only then went out to buy a car that they would fit on? Or someone who rented a hall for their wedding reception and only then started looking for someone to marry? You would probably say something like, you need to take care of first things first, or maybe you shouldn't put the cart before the horse. Similarly, if we want to learn how to read the Bible, the first question we need to ask ourselves is what is the Bible? Now, the word Bible is an anglicized version of a more ancient word for, get ready for it, book. That's right. But the Bible is clearly no ordinary book. Pedens, who I just quoted, wrote a recent book called How the Bible Actually Works. And he talks about three things that we need to acknowledge about the Bible if we want to read it well. He says we need to understand that it is ancient, that this is written a very long time ago, and so we need to create, to find a way to bridge that distance. It is ambiguous. This is not a manual, it is not an instruction book, it is not a how-to, um, but it is more of like a, a book that inspires us to think well and use wisdom about how we're gonna live our lives. And it is diverse. There is not just one voice, there are multiple perspectives, different voices speaking into this pursuit of a godly life. Now before there were gold-edged pages, red letters, ribbon bookmarks, or apps, the Bible was a collection of histories, poems, and letters written over the span of 1,500 years by more than 40 authors and in three different languages. Now, in some ways, reading anything requires some discernment. Where did this material come from? Who wrote this? Who was their intended audience? If you're going to read Shakespeare, you have to understand that it was written in Elizabethan England. If you're going to read Dostoevsky, you have to have a bit of an understanding of the backdrop of 19th century Russian serfdom. If you're going to read Toni Morrison, you have to understand that she was writing from the perspective of 20, the 20th century African-American struggle. So when you understand the context that someone is writing in, it really helps you understand the writings more. Now, the Bible demands a whole other level of discernment, given its dozens of authors, many of them writing at vastly different times in history. We're going to do a little timeline thing for you here. Um, examples of some of the biblical authors and their chronology. Now, the very first parts of the Bibles were written who knows when. Literally, scholars don't know when to place the origin, the first writings of the Bible, which they would say the book of Job is probably the oldest of the books of the Bible. Um, but who wrote it and when it was written, no one really knows. The first known um, books would be the books of Moses. So the first five books of the Bible written, many scholars believe, at least mostly or partly by Moses, and that would be around 1400 BC. Around 1000 BC, David pens his beloved Psalms. Around 700 BC, Isaiah records his prophecies. The New Testament happens centuries later, and it is really all condensed in a period of about 50 years. Around 45 AD, James writes his letter to the scattered believers, believed to be the earliest of the New Testament writings. Around 60 AD, Luke narrates his account of Jesus' life after speaking to many eyewitnesses. And around 95 AD, John records the revelation of Jesus while in exile on the island of Patmos. So just before the end of the first century, the last pages of the Bible were written. Now, this is overly simplistic, but it gives you a picture of what we're dealing with. Think about this. The latest contribution to this sacred text are as far removed from us historically as someone writing 
in the year 3947. Now just try to wrap your head around that. 3947, what on earth will this world be like that far into the future? Well, that is how far back we have to go to get to the most recent biblical authors. So the text that gives shape to our lives as followers of Jesus was given shape itself over 1,500 years, but then the shaping didn't stop when the writing ceased. In the early years of the first millennium, leaders of Christian communities differed on their understanding of what should be considered sacred text. There were all kinds of different writings that were floating around in the few hundred, first few hundred years after Christ. And so in the year 367, St. Athanasius, a leader in the church, wrote an Easter letter, and he compiled what it was the first record of the book of the list of New Testament books that we have in the Bible today. And this is what he wrote as part of that letter where he included this list. According to what the original eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered unto our fathers, I also, having been urged by true brethren and having investigated the matter from the beginning, have decided to set forth in order the writings that have been put in the canon that have been handed down and confirmed as divine. These are the springs of salvation, in order that he who is thirsty may fully refresh himself with the words contained in them. In them alone is the doctrine of piety proclaimed. Let no one add anything to them or take anything away from them. And so, at the end of the fourth century, the compilation of writings that we know today as the Bible was completed and affirmed for its unique contribution to the spiritual vitality of Jesus' followers. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was working out in the front lawn, maybe putting some grass seed in or something like that. And our neighbors pulled into the driveway and their little six-year-old son jumped out of the vehicle and he came running over to me. And he's like, guess what? Guess what? And I was like, I couldn't begin to guess what. I'm like, what? And he says, I got a new video game. It's one that you can play on the TV. Now, I assume that all the games he plays are probably on a phone or an iPad. So he's very excited about this. I said, what video game is it? He said, it's, it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so crazy. Um, so I'm very excited about this news. And then he says to me, he says, you know, once I've played it, maybe you could come over and play it with me. And I'm thinking, like kids are just awesome. Like the, the fact that he thought it would be a good idea for me to go over to his house and play this video game with him. I'm just like, wow, that's amazing. Um, children are incredible. And the passage that we read in Romans talks about our place as children of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. There's this great quote from Rachel Held Evans in her book, Inspired. Dignified or not, believable or not, Ours is a God perpetually unbended knee, doing everything it takes to convince stubborn and petulant children that they are seen and loved. It is no more beneath God to speak to us using poetry, proverb, letters, and legend than it is for a mother to read storybooks to her daughter at bedtime. This is who God is. This is what God does. A mother reads storybooks to her daughter in an effort to connect with her child. And in a similar way, God uses the Bible to connect with us as God's children. Hal Levins presents another idea that leads us into the next theme that I'd like us to consider as we weigh the importance of an historical reading of the Bible. The idea of God speaking to us. What does it mean for the Bible to be inspired? This is a big question. It deserves a sermon on its own, but we're just going to touch on it as part of this series. Did God dictate the content of the Bible to its various authors word for word? How does that explain the apparent contradictions or suspect passages in the Bible? I would say that in one sense, it's true to say God says in Romans 8, 
But it would be more true to say something like, God speaks to us through Paul's words in Romans 8. Clark Pinnock, who's a who was a theologian and author who taught at McMaster Divinity School in Hamilton, writes that inspiration secures a classic text through which the Spirit can continue to speak, making texts live and helping us grasp their significance. This is powerful. So the inspiration of the Bible was intended not to be the final word, but that the Spirit of God can continue to speak to us through these inspired words. As we give the Bible this place in our life together, we find a common source of inspiration. What we read in the pages of this book are not only the words of the original authors, but reminding ourselves of the human authorship of the Bible will help us understand what we're reading with more clarity, removing at least some of our tendency toward error. Now, we're going to unpack that idea a little more next week. But for now, let's remember that God is not opposed to using fragile and flawed people to bring about God's will in the world. If we can remember this, then those parts of the Bible that confuse or maybe even anger us can be received for what they are. And we can invite God to speak to us through it all. Remember what I said about Ecclesiastes being like a questionable job reference. Why would God include this in the Bible? And there are other pieces of the Bible as well that we might wonder, why is this in here? But that might help us shift our questions. Instead of asking, how could God say this? Or how could God do this? Maybe a better question for us to ask would be something like, what does it mean that God allowed this to be included in this sacred text? Now, we can't talk about inspiration without touching on 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. In Paul's letter, he writes, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, of course, this passage can only be referring to the Old Testament specifically, but the principle applies to scripture as a whole. How can we position ourselves in a way that we will allow these sacred words to shape and form us so that we can join God in the renewal of all things? That's our question. Now, it's important to have at least a basic understanding of the history of how the various parts of the Bible were written and how it all came together in one book. But it's also important to reflect on what has happened with this book over the course of the last 1600 years. Now, in many ways, the Bible has remained unchanged with the occasional scholarly edit. Scholars of the Bible discover that a ah, word is probably better translated this way. Um, there might be specific small changes like that, grammatical changes. Uh, there have also been cultural changes, such as the use of gender-neutral language. Um, so instead of a passage referring to my brothers, it will be my brothers and sisters. Sometimes instead of a passage just referring to men, it will say people, unless it was explicitly intending men. Um, but this also begs the question, what culture are we talking about? If we are going to, to alter the language that we use in the Bible to reflect culture, what culture are we talking about? I went to a website for Wycliffe Bible Translators and found this infographic we'll put up on the screen for you. A couple of numbers jumped out at me. That the full Bible, front to back, has been translated into an incredible 704 different languages. The New Testament, which is much shorter and therefore much easier to translate, has been translated into an additional 1,551 languages. Now this is incredible, although there is also a large gap, thousands of languages of people groups, often smaller people groups around the world who do not have a translation of the Bible. But beyond language, what about the ways that our understanding of the Bible has been influenced by the communities that we're a part of? 
I'd like to read a quote that comes from Esau Macaulay's recent book called Reading While Black. He writes, Euro-American scholars, ministers, and lay folk have over the centuries used their economic, academic, religious, and political dominance to create the illusion that the Bible read through their experience is the Bible read correctly. Now, the title of this book makes me think about what it may, means for me to read while white. How does my perspective, how do the influence, influential voices in my life and my education influence how I not only read, but also teach the Bible? I think it was three or four years ago, I did a bit of an experiment as I was starting to think about these questions and I took out the Africa Bible commentary from the library and I used it for a season, I think it was over the course of a summer, um, as first part of my study during the week. I was like, I wanna try to understand like what might be different if I started li listening to voices of people who live in different parts of the world than I do, to pastors and theologians who think differently about these same scriptures. I think the important thing for us to understand, or at least acknowledge maybe for the first time, is that no one culture is better suited to talk about God than another, and that includes my own culture. Macaulay continues, he says, who we are and where we are located influences not what the Bible says, but our ability to perceive it rightly. You see, any of us who opens the pages of this book is not starting from scratch, but is leaning into and living out of an ancient faith tradition. God has been doing something in this world since day one, and God has been calling human onward in faith, calling Abraham to leave the comforts of home with only the promise of future blessing, calling Moses to stand up to injustice and to lead people into freedom, calling Isaiah to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, calling John to make a way in the wilderness to prepare a way for the Lord, calling Peter, James, and a different John, and others to drop everything and follow Jesus calling us to leave, stand up, proclaim, make a way, and to drop everything ourselves. There is a long narrative arc spanning the length of history, and whatever we read from this book of all books is found somewhere on the arc of God's activity in the world. Reading the Bible historically involves identifying where the words we're reading fall on that arc and allowing the story as a whole to inform our understanding of what we read. So we can't ever just pick up a verse or a passage and read it outside the context of scripture as a whole. If we do that, we can get ourselves into trouble. Again, from Rachel Held Evans. The fact that a single biblical text can mean many things doesn't mean it can mean anything. Slave traders justified the exploitation of black people by claiming the curse on Noah's son Ham rendered all Africans subhuman. Many Puritans and pioneers appealed to the story of Joshua's conquest of Canaan to support attacks on indigenous populations. In a similar vein, Esau Macaulay writes, there are uses of scripture that utter a false testimony about God. This is what we see in Satan's use of scripture in the wilderness. The problem isn't that the scriptures that Satan quoted were untrue, but when made to do the work that he wanted them to do, they distorted the biblical witness. Ultimately, any conception we have of God, ourselves, or what God is up to in the world has to be in line with the God revealed to us in Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 10, 22, no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And Jesus has revealed who God is to us. 
So we, as, we, as we grow in our awareness of the lenses that we are reading the Bible through, we must always read through the lens of Jesus, who he is, what he taught, how he lived. Of course, this can seem daunting. It can seem overwhelming, but we don't have to do this on our own. Again, from Romans 8, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. From Esau Macaulay, let's trust the spirit to use a multiplicity of voices and allow the truth to emerge. Now, the other day, Jude finished reading a book that he is doing, was reading as part of his English class in high school. It's called The Glass Castle. Uh, some of you may have read the book. Some of you may have seen the movie. Um, if you're about to do so or wish you had done so, you might want to plug your ears for the next moment. Bit of a spoiler alert. So he finished reading this book and he was telling me, he's like, the craziest part about this story, uh, it's the story of this kind of dysfunctional family that is really led by, by a really dysfunctional husband and father. And Jude says, the really crazy thing about this story is that, you know, while this father had all of these big dreams and big plans that he wanted, but he could just never quite get the money or the resources to do it, the whole time, his wife, the mother of this family, had a property that was worth a lot of money, but she refused to sell it. She refused to use the resources that she had had to help make his dreams come true. Now, in this case, she knew that using her resources would have been destructive. But our lesson is the inverse of this story. If we don't use the resources that we have available to us when it comes to reading the Bible, well, that can be destructive. When we read the Bible, we're not just reading it, our, we're not just reading stories, we're actually shaping the story of our own life and the lives of others as well. So I'll close with this thought, again from N.T. Wright. Uh, that same time when I heard him speak, he used this analogy that I don't know if it was his initially, but it's a, it's a beautiful way to think about scripture. He said that the Bible can be thought of as like a Shakespearean play with five acts. And the first four acts are creation, the fall, Israel, Jesus. And then acts five is the church. He says the New Testament is basically from the book of Acts on is basically kind of scene one of act five. And he goes on to say how we are actors on the stage of act five of the Bible, that the lives that we live, the story we are living out is a continuation of the story that began in act one. He writes, we read scripture in order to be refreshed in our memory and understanding of the story within which we ourselves are actors to be reminded where it has come from and where it is going to, and hence what our own part within it ought to be. In just a moment, we're gonna break for our neighbors groups and have an opportunity to discuss this morning's theme. If you haven't done this before, there'll be a link in the comments and you'll be invited to join a discussion group. Um, for those who are part of a regular neighbors group, I hope there's some really good dialogue that comes as we begin this series together. But before we head off, let's pray. Lord, I give thanks for this book of all books, that somehow over the course of such a long span of time, your Holy Spirit inspired people to write and to bring together so that it could be passed on to us, that these stories, that these letters, that these words of wisdom, that the words of Jesus would be available and accessible to us. God, we pray that you'd be with us as we try to live it rightly, as we try to find out what our place 
in the grand story of scripture is today. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead, enjoy your discussion group. Enjoy the rest of this weekend. Peace to you.